Would you like a little more joy in your life? Oh, okay. <laughs> Got some Taylor Swift tickets in my pocket. <laughs> Only kidding. Would you like a little bit more joy in your life? Yes, no, not sure. Well, listen up this morning. And my prayer is that the Lord might grant to us a hearing and in that hearing maybe even a changing of our hearts that he would give us what it is that we need for that joy to increase, a steady note of joy in our lives. We've been hearing the last couple of weeks, Paul's letter to the Philippians, how Paul's joy is abounding as he sees and he gives thanks to God for seeing the grace of God at work in the lives of these believers and the fruit of that grace in the Philippian church. In particular, the book starts with their partnership with him in the gospel. They're being fellow partakers with him of the grace of God. And it's in that grateful joy that he's actually confident, he's sure that he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion. So there's joy and there's confidence together. And then last week we considered Paul's prayer for them and prayed ourselves that the Lord would grant that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we might approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then this week, if you heard it in our reading from verses 12 to 18, you can open up to the passage if you like, or not if you like, do it. Uh, No, it'd be great to follow through this morning. Whatever predicament Paul finds himself in, he finds reasons for joy. Have you ever noticed that about Paul? There seems to be no shortage whatsoever for Paul to have joy. And we would do well, I think, to learn from Paul, to seek the same sort of joy he has and to ask the Lord that he might grant to us similar things. Paul's own predicament, he's stuck under house arrest, imprisoned, but that's the least of his concerns. In fact, if that state of affairs, if his situation has served to advance the gospel, which he says it has, then that's no reason to be sad. In fact, it's reason for him to rejoice. I'm glad I'm in prison because the gospel's advancing. Even if he himself can't be out and about proclaiming the gospel of Christ, which is what he'd long to be doing, he will still rejoice because he's hearing and seeing and knowing that others are proclaiming Christ, even if their motives are a little bit off, as we're about to learn. My ESV study Bible, which is not exhaustive by any means, but it can be helpful, says that one of the chief themes of this letter to the Philippians is that of encouragement. And in the passage before us this morning, Paul's encouraging the Philippian believers not to lose heart because of his imprisonment. He doesn't say that explicitly, but that's the effect of what he's doing and what he's saying. It's been up to four years or more since they last saw Paul. Think about someone you haven't seen for four years. Have you kept in touch? Do you know what's going on in their life? They didn't have Skype, WhatsApp and all the other stuff and social media. They didn't even have daily postal service. News didn't travel very fast in those days. And if it did, it took weeks, if not months, had to go with the travellers and sometimes with a particular courier for a letter like this. The Philippians over those years may have heard rumours about what was happening to Paul and the gospel around the place in Asia Minor. 
and they would have speculated a lot about what was going on in between hearing bits of news. They may have heard that their fellow Epaphroditus, one of their own, courier to Paul for a letter that came to him and a gift earlier, he had fallen ill, almost died. We pick that up in chapter 2. And maybe some news of Paul's imprisonment has, has reached them. But without email or telephone, you can imagine over the weeks and months their concerns for Paul and for Epaphroditus may be increasing. Oh, what's the news? What's the latest? Is he okay? Is he going to make it? What's happening with him in prison? That's one of the reasons Paul is writing this letter, to update them, give them an update on how he's going, how Epaphroditus is going, to inform them and to encourage them of his situation. Not just to say, it's all okay, Epaphroditus has pulled through and I'm doing okay. He wants to encourage them that even though he's in prison, the gospel is not being restrained. In fact, it served to advance the gospel. And in that, Paul rejoices. He doesn't want them to be disheartened. He wants them to be encouraged because the gospel is going out. As bad and as difficult as the situation might seem, as bad as the situation might be, don't be discouraged. Christ is being proclaimed. The gospel is being heard. Don't be discouraged, he says, by my imprisonment. Rejoice with me. Whatever concerns they might have for him, legitimate or not, whatever concerns they might have for Epaphroditus, Paul speaks of those things, but then he shifts their focus to the cause of the gospel. You know the old hymn, Be Thou My Vision? O Lord of my heart, naught, nothing, be all else to me, save that thou art. Nothing but you be my vision. Let Christ be your vision, Paul is saying, and let his gospel be your concern, not me. Thou my best thought, let you be my best thought. Remember last week that we may approve what is best, what is excellent? Lord, you be my best thought. By day or night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. You be my dignity. You be my delight, my joy. I reckon if that song was written centuries earlier, Paul would have been singing that one lots in prison. He's got so many reasons to rejoice. Let's take a look at the passage and just a little bit of simple observation and exegesis. Almost every verse between verse 12 and 18 mentions Paul's imprisonment. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me. He's been arrested. He's been sent to Rome in chains. Verse 13, my imprisonment. Verse 14, my imprisonment. Verse 16, I am put here in chains. Verse 17, my imprisonment. And simply because of the sheer volume of that being mentioned, it would be easy to think that this passage is all about Paul's imprisonment. But it's not the case. The ESV has got the right uh, subheading here. It's called the advance of the gospel. Because Paul doesn't want them just thinking about his imprisonment. He wants them to see the result of his imprisonment. It's all connected to that. And what is that result? Verse 12, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 13, the whole imperial guard and all the rest, probably the rest of the guardians and captors, maybe not from the the palace. They now know about Christ as well. They know why I'm here. 
Verse 14, most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment. They become much more bold, not with more fear, but with less, with no fear because of his imprisonment. And then verses 15 to 17, seems a little bit odd this one, but there are others out there preaching and they actually envious of Paul. There's rivalry. They want to sort of, nah, 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 Paul, you're in there. We're out here. We're preaching. They want to afflict him, it says. But you know what? Paul doesn't mind. So long as they're preaching Christ, he's happy. So Paul goes right back at you. (laughs) You're doing the very thing I want to be doing anyway. And Christ is being proclaimed. I'm sure he wasn't quite that uncouth. But what then, he says, verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. And where is it that Christ is being proclaimed? It's most likely, some scholars always like to argue these things, it's most likely Paul's in prison here in Rome. That's why we had Romans 15 read for us. Did you hear how Paul longed to be in Rome? And we could have had Romans 1 as well at the very beginning of that letter. He's never been there, but he writes one of the biggest letters he's written to a church he hasn't been to, but he knows lots of people if you read chapter 16. And he wants to go there and share the gospel, but he doesn't want to do it on someone else's foundation because the gospel's already been preached there. But he longs to go there to be encouraged and to encourage them in their faith. He wants to see the gospel proclaimed in the power centre of the first century, the supernation of the first century in Rome. And he said at the end of our reading from Romans 15, I'm sure that when I come, I will come in the fullness of blessing of Christ. I'm sure of that, he says. And here he is, now in Rome, in chains. Probably not what he was thinking when he wrote Romans. (laughs) I'm going to come to you on my way to Spain. I'll just stop by and I want to encourage you on my way. But you know what? He comes even in chains, under house arrest, full of the blessing of Christ, because he's full of Christ. And the gospel is being proclaimed because of his imprisonment. And so the blessing of Christ continues to flow, even though he himself is restrained. There's a bit of symmetry to all of this, isn't there? Because Paul was in prison in Philippi when he was there. And that gave him opportunities to share the gospel with people in the prison. The jailer, his whole household came to faith. And I reckon Paul's actually been given opportunities in prison. You'd think, oh, that's a bit of a setback. And he's got opportunities there that he wouldn't have had otherwise. I know there's situations today, I think of one person in particular beyond what John and what we hear from Obelong, where there's people in prison who know the Lord and unless they were there, other people would not be hearing the gospel and they're intent on spending their time there reading, learning and sharing the gospel with others. My chains fell off, my heart was free. No, and can it be? Well, Paul's in chains, but his heart's still free. And Christ and the gospel still just pours out of his mouth and out of his heart. So even when we physically can't rise and go forth and follow thee, the gospel's not stopped. It keeps going. Even the question to Paul, you know, from the guards or anyone else, why are you here? What are you in for? I don't know if you're, are you allowed to ask that? You might not be, but sure the prisoners do. The inmates are, what are you in for? What have you done? Imagine Paul answering that. I was preaching Christ. What does that mean? And all of a sudden you've got an opportunity to share the gospel. That's what I'm in for. 
Let me tell you, whatever you're in for, let me tell you about the gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the forgiveness of sins. Let me tell you he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. You thought your imprisonment here was bad. You want to avoid what's to come. Receive Christ. So that's the first reason for Paul's joy here. Even though he's stuck in prison, he's got new guard with him every day, probably on a roster, watching over him, maybe chained to him, making sure he doesn't run away, and he's able to share the gospel. So that the guards who are from the Roman palace, it's not the palace itself, but the guards, the Roman guard, the imperial, they're hearing the gospel. The gospel's gone to the very centre of Rome, the Roman government, the Roman authorities. So he rejoices in that. And secondly, not just what's taking place within the prison, but beyond the walls of Paul's confinement, the second result of Paul's imprisonment is that others, most of the brothers, Paul calls them, fellow workers in the gospel, Paul's in prison, they've actually become more confident, much more bold to speak the word without fear. Their fearless leader, he's gone, no longer with them, stuck in a house under arrest, but that setback, as it might be perceived, is no setback at all. It's actually served to advance the gospel. And you might think, well, hang on, if if our esteemed leader has just been put in prison, we better keep low for a little while. We might lose confidence, (laughs) bunker down and just keep our heads... No, that's not how it works. Not here. Not with the gospel. Not with the spirit at work. Sometimes a leader, no matter how bold or how humble, how much of a... Um, a lone ranger or one who brings people alongside or not, sometimes it takes the removal of that leader for others to step up and step in and take the responsibility and use the good gifts that they've been given to do what God's called them to do. And there's something like that happening here. The grace, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, others are rising up without fear, all the more bold to proclaim the gospel. Maybe Paul's example has sort of emboldened them. Oh, if he can do it, so can we. Remember in Acts when some of them got arrested and they rejoiced and praised God that they were worthy of suffering for the sake of Christ? Maybe they wanted to be like that. Suffer dishonour for the name of Christ. Maybe they've seen the fruit of the gospel. They've seen new life come to the new believers in Rome and they want to be in on the action. That'd be a pretty good motive. Whatever the reason, God's doing a work in their hearts, boosting their confidence by the Spirit such that, well, if Paul can't preach the gospel, it's not going to stop us. We're going to go out there and make sure the gospel's still proclaimed. And their confidence, Paul says, is not in themselves, it's not in Paul, it's not even in the environment, this little mini revival that might be happening because Paul's in prison. Their confidence, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord. That's where their confidence is. Whatever the context, whatever's happening, the Spirit's doing something in their lives. Their confidence is in Christ. They've partaken themselves of the same grace of God that Paul spoke about at the beginning of this letter. And that grace is bearing fruit in their hearts and their lives. And so filled with the Spirit, knowing that grace and the love of God, they want others to be in on that. And so they can't stop speaking the gospel. 
And thirdly, from verse 15, there are others, maybe with less goodwill and love than those brothers we've just been hearing of. They're actually intent on doing more damage to Paul. They want to afflict him in his imprisonment by preaching Christ. And they do so, Paul tells us, out of envy and rivalry, verse 15, and verse 17, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. They want to afflict Paul or stir up trouble for him. The Greek word there, phlipsis, means trouble or tribulation or affliction, distress. It's related to the word meaning to press or squash or rub and cause friction. And one writer suggests it sort of evokes the image of Paul in chains and what they want to do is tighten those chains and make them rub on him until they're sore. They want to make Paul squirm in his chains. But how is it that they're preaching Christ, them preaching the gospel would do that to Paul? It's not because they're false teachers, because if they were, I don't think Paul would be rejoicing. Make, that's pretty clear in other letters. And Paul very clearly says, don't have nothing to do with them. They're apart from Christ. They're severed from Christ. I don't want anyone preaching any other gospel but the one you hear from me. He curses them. But here he's rejoicing in their preaching. It seems these rival preachers were genuine believers, genuine proclaimers of Christ, and yet they hated Paul, or if hate's too strong, there was envy and rivalry there. There's some sort of competition Maybe they're Roman believers who didn't want some Jerusalem upstart coming and showing them how to do it. I don't know. But there was venom in what they were doing. Maybe they wanted to build up their own mega church and not have other people come and sort of steal others away. Don't ever think denominational battles and sheep stealing and other bits and pieces are only a 21st century problem. It was happening right back here. But all of that's actually speculation. We don't know the reason nor do we know how they thought they would afflict Paul or why they were so jealous but nor should we be so naive as to think that the sort that same sort of thing couldn't happen today proclaiming Christ to serve our own purposes as sad as that would be but hear what Paul says about these rival preachers It seems odd to me, and it might to you, that someone filled with that sort of envy and rivalry could actually proclaim the love of God and the grace of Christ, genuinely. But Paul says, you know what? I don't care. As long as Christ is preached, I'm rejoicing in that. More than anything, what is important for Paul is not whether they're going to him or trying to afflict him anymore. He wants to celebrate the fact that Christ is proclaimed. whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Now I'm sure Paul would have much preferred them to be part of the second group, the brothers sharing in that love and that confidence. He would have loved a unity in the gospel. But that's not happening. And I'm sure if he got out, he would have loved to talk to them and try to reconcile and work out their differences. But he's rejoicing in the fact that Christ is being proclaimed. His affliction... His imprisonment, even those in competition or rivalry against him, they're secondary or maybe even tertiary. They hardly even figure in his thinking. Because what's important, what's primary to Paul, is the task of preaching Christ and rejoicing in the fact that he's being proclaimed.
And as I was preparing this week and last week for this, as I mentioned to the kids earlier, that's been a bit of a wake-up call to me. And maybe it is to you too. Convicted me personally. What's important? What's primary for me? In what things do I rejoice in? So it's been a wake-up call for me, but it's also been a prayer of mine for us. What do we rejoice in? What's primary for us here? We might think, well, this is fair enough. Paul's Paul. You know, Paul's Paul. He's an apostle, even the least of all, as he says. But he's still an apostle. and He's called to preach the gospel to the nations. And he's just got a special gift and special calling. So fair enough that this would be Paul's primary heart and joy. Except I don't think that's how it should be. Paul is Paul and he's called for a certain ministry in a certain time and place, in a certain way. But he's also an example to us. And at times he tells us to follow his example as well as following the example of Christ. And maybe this is one way that God actually increases our love that it might abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, approving what is excellent, what is best. Because Paul knows what is best is Christ and him crucified and finding our joy in that. So maybe rather than a wake-up call, let me ask that question I asked at the beginning of the service again, more of a carrot than a stick, if you like. I didn't, it's not intended to be a stick. <laughs> but would you like more joy in your life? Because Paul's got plenty. Paul, this is a letter of joy, we said a couple of weeks ago. But simply reading it, that might give you a bit of joy. But as James tells his readers of his letter, we're to be doers of the word, not just hearers of it. And Paul's joy here is definitely not about his circumstances. It's all about Christ. His circumstances are looking pretty grim, actually. He's in prison, he's under house arrest. But his joy is not diminished at all, is it? If anything, he's all the more joyful because his imprisonment, his circumstances actually served the advance of the gospel. Even if he's missing out on seeing it all happen out there. And so I wonder if we have little or no joy in our lives, if we'd like to have a little bit more of the kind of joy that Paul speaks of here, joy that doesn't diminish when life throws some curveballs at us, or God does something in our life that we weren't expecting and didn't really want. Hayden sang that song a couple I asked the Lord that I might grow. It didn't turn out the way that John Newton thought, did it? We need to pray. If we uh, don't have this joy in our own lives and hearts, because we can't just change it like a switch got to be a change of the heart the other things that we try to find joy in actually need to be shunted across the Lord's got to do that and we've got to turn our eyes upon Jesus and pray that the Lord might actually grant to us a joy in Christ and a joy in the gospel and in hearing about the gospel and being part of sharing that gospel God has given us, don't get me wrong, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. We're allowed to enjoy his good gifts. It would be wrong for us not to. I was sharing with the youth group last night about God's very good creation. So much to enjoy. 
You may eat from every tree in the garden. And the trees are looking pretty good if you've got some fruit trees at the moment. But maybe we've been looking for our joy in other places. Or maybe Christ and the gospel has not been primary in our vision, in our lives. Not all of our life, not all of our circumstances, good or bad, will serve to advance the gospel, promote the gospel as they are here for Paul. Sometimes our suffering and the affliction that comes our way doesn't seem to have any purpose whatsoever. And you read scripture, you wrestle with God and you pray and you talk with others. There's a whole lot of reasons things happen to us and God gives us up to suffering. Sin and evil can cause trouble and pain. We live in a broken, sinful world. God's shaping us up, disciplining us, refining our faith. Others can afflict pain upon us too. That's just to name a few. But whatever the reasons around it, whatever God is doing, Paul's rejoicing that it's serving to advance the gospel. The circumstance itself might not be good. And we should be careful to say that it must be good because God is sovereign. It doesn't say that. God is good and God works good things. Right? He's always working good in and through those things that are happening to us for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But think about Joseph and his brothers. It wasn't a good thing that they stuck him in a well, was it? It's not a good thing. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Think of Jesus on the cross. Innocent man, crucified, murdered, executed. It's not a good thing, is it? Many hundreds, thousands of others were crucified. It's not a good thing. And yet this Lord, this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised him from the dead and made the best thing ever. And it was all under God's hand in the first place. So we might not always know the specific purpose or reason why things are happening. Paul's not even saying necessarily that his imprisonment was so that the gospel would advance, but he's rejoicing in the fact that it is. But what we can always know without knowing the specific, I think we can know the general purpose that God is always doing. Because if you read that passage in Romans 8, God is always working things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? Sometimes we may never see it. But I want to suggest to you that we can know the general thing that God is doing because of the next verse. The ultimate goal of what God is doing for those who love him and are called according to his purpose is that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is always shaping us up. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will conform us into the image of his son, that he would be our vision and that we would reflect his glory and that would be to his glory. And in that we rejoice. Last week, if you weren't here, you can share with others afterwards and ask about it. But last week, John shared some of his health situation with us. And we heard of Scott's as well. And John was cheeky enough, as he does sometimes, to add a little bit to the end of my sermon. 
we often chatted working together, sometimes John was good at just putting in a little practical, specific thing, and I tend to leave things a little bit broad sometimes, and it was a helpful thing. One way I love Kinabound is actually look at, find someone that we don't know at church. It was a lovely little addendum. But then John shared his own situation. So he started actually with our church and how we might love. And then he shared about his own health. And then did you hear what he asked us to pray afterwards? Yes, he asked for healing and for wisdom with regards to decisions and treatment. But whatever the journey and outcome, John asked us to pray that the Lord would use this trial in his life and his family and the ministry the Lord would still give him. John asked us to pray that this trial would be used for the progress of his gospel and the glory of his wonderful name. John's words. Now, if you know John just a little bit, or even after just hearing him last week, you would know he would much prefer not to be ill. He's not a good patient, is he, Margaret? (laughs) And he wants us to pray for that too. But as John shared with us, you could see and hear that the burden of his heart was actually the gospel of Christ. The advance of the gospel, to use Paul's words. That this trial would serve to advance the gospel. And no, I'm not putting John and Paul up on a pedestal of equal standing because it's not about rivalry and selfish ambition. It's not about that. But what I am saying is there's something of the same spirit there as there is here in Paul. Because John has partaken of the same grace and has the same spirit and has the same heart. We have been given the mind of Christ. All of us, not just the apostles and the pastors, have the same mind of Christ that is yours in him. None of us really enjoy suffering, do we? (laughs) We might still have things on our bucket lists might want to live to see the grandkids or enjoy retirement and do it and they're good gifts for us to enjoy and we should and we can pray for them they're good things but Paul asked us and we prayed last week that we wouldn't just know what is good but that we'd know what is best and what is excellent And that is, as Paul's going to tell us in a week or two, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says to depart and be with Christ. I'm going to steal some of that's thunder, but that's okay. He's not here. (laughs) 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 To depart and be with Christ, Paul knows and we know, is actually far better, he says. No more suffering. Resurrection bodies. Communion with the Lord and glory. But to remain, he says, well, that means fruitful labour, hard work, fruitful work, kingdom work. And I'll rejoice in that because it's all about Christ and the gospel. And it's for you, out of love, Paul says, that I want to do this. And I'm not suggesting God doesn't care for us or comfort us or bring healing. He knows us and cares about us more than we could ever know. But better health, more comfort, Better circumstances, being freed from prison or cured from cancer, headaches and heartaches. 
They're not primary for Paul. They hardly figure at all, so long as Christ is proclaimed and God is glorified. And so, like I said, it's a bit of a wake-up call to me, and maybe for us. Can we say with Paul, in that I rejoice, even as the tears flow. In that we rejoice. That can be our testimony. And I dare say, for anything like me, you want that to be your testimony. And you probably wobble and stumble and wander in it, back and forth, knowing it's one thing, doing it's another, living in it day by day, dying in it. Well, that takes all the grace of God, doesn't it? Which is a good thing, because you know what? God's grace abounds to us sinners. And so I pray, and we can pray, and you know, one of the best things about prayer, one of the, we can be on the best ground, I said on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago, when a, um, we can pray standing on the promises of God. The next best thing is, or even as good, is that when we pray the same thing Jesus prays. Because in John 15 and John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples and prays for other believers that his joy, the joy of Christ, would be in us. And that our joy might be full in him.